And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Welcome to the Grandland Network. My name is Andy Greenwald. This is a great day here in the New York studio. I am sitting here with a musician whose music has meant an awful lot to me over the years. You might know him as the leader of Superchunk. You might know him as one of the co-founders of Merge Records. I promise you probably know him. Mac McCon, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, I have to start with the tough questions. Uh, Merge was founded in what year? 1989. 1989. Signed the label and Superchunk, same, same, same time. time. Mm-hmm. So is it true then that Merge was just a 26-year long con to finally release a solo album? Yes, I've been working up to my solo debut, <laughs> uh, which is coming out in May. Look, this is when I get to pretend to be a real talk show host. Because <clears throat> we have a camera, I'm holding it up. This is Nonbelievers, your first solo album. I'm sorry that we don't have the LP for you I know, to this up. feels very, like, late 90s. Uh-huh. But <laughs> this album is beautiful and fantastic, and I Thank love you. it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Why, why release this album now, and why under your own name? I think that I arrived at this point of just putting it out under my own name. Um, I just wanted to drop the charade. <laughs> You've been lying for too long. <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it's obviously not a super chunk record because that super chunk is a band that has certain people in it. And since it's not the four of us, then um, in the past I'd released records under the name Portostatic yeah. since 93, um, And several years ago I put out a compilation that kind of gathered up all these loose ends of Portostatic records. Um, and I kind of figured that would be the end of portostatic and it was it at, and it was at a time when superchunk was becoming more active uh, with a record called majesty shredding and a record after that called i hate music we hadn't made a record before majesty shredding in like nine years nine or something years, yeah. so we were becoming more active portostatic i felt like had kind of run its course as a concept uh so when it came time to um make a new record um i mean superchunk isn't wasn't about to to do anything um everyone's busy doing other things at the moment um but i started writing songs and um and so when it was turning into an album i i had to think about well is this am i going to go back to portostatic what am i going to do um and so my own impossible to spell terrible to pronounce name was just waiting for me right there and so i just kind of i just decided to go with that it had been there all along it had been there Hiding all in plain along. sight. <laughs> we were talking right before we started recording about how i think we we're both of a generation where it is incredibly cooler to have a band name whether you're a solo artist or not i mean you you have to i'm sure you obsess over it and you you cherry pick it and you think about how it's going to look on a on a record sleeve portostatic is a very cool name it's it's kind of cool. At the same time, you know, people see Portostatic and, I mean, the main thing they do is go like, what's that? And the second thing <laughs> is like, they say, oh, Portis Head? I've heard of that. I've heard of you guys. And like, no, no, no. They're much more popular. Uh, that's true. But for a lot of 90s kids, you were filed right next to each other and the CD wall. That's right. Maybe they someone accidentally <laughs> pulled the wrong one. Got and- a Portostatic CD. Um, yeah, I mean – Right. My favorite artists, I mean, maybe other than Bruce Springsteen when I was growing up, were bands, you know. Um, But – and and certainly in the culture of late 80s, early 90s indie, it would have felt very, look at me, 
with my name, you know, to put out a record under <laughs> your back. own name, I, I, you know, um, as well as seeming very singer-songwriter, I- implying things that you didn't want to imply. Like an aesthetic purity. It was just you, just a guitar. Something like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and so I avoided it for a long time, but uh, it didn't, you know, uh, one thing that's happened is that... Um, in the 90s when Portostatic and Superchunk were kind of coexisting and alternating almost like releases, mm-hmm. when I would do shows as Portostatic, which wasn't all that often, but when I would, I, we would just play Portostatic music and the lineup would change and that was really fun to be, be able to play with all these different people. I mean, at times, the Portostatic lineup included John from Superchunk, included Ash Bowie from Palvo, yeah. um, Claire Ashby and Sarah Bell from the Angels of Epistemology, which is one of the first bands on Merge. Um, all these different people I got to play with, and so that was really fun. And the styles would change too. And I mean, st- from from slow note from a sinking ship to nature of sap were very different records. True, the the, the styles would change, and uh, I got to play with my brother, who's a drummer, who plays with Bon Iver now. Mm-hmm. Um, he got to play with him a bunch, but when we were alternating, I wasn't overlapping on the songs. Like I wouldn't play super chunk songs when I was playing by myself or as part of that. Keeping it separate. But you know. In the last few years, uh, I've started doing just solo shows, just totally by myself, and just started playing Super Chunk songs and Portostatic songs all together, and it's 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 fun to do that. And so, one reason that I decided to do this record under my own name is so that I could just play shows under my own name and be able to play whatever songs I wanted, and not have a be a thing where it's called this band, so you can only play these songs. I mean, it's all rules that we make up yeah, for this ourselves. Orthodoxy. You're but, finally past it. But I'm just trying to get past it, you know? I mean, I think that one thing that, whether it's making records or playing shows or deciding what shows you're going to do and where you're going to tour and how much you're going to tour, as as I've gotten older and as one gets older, hopefully, you can really just less – just give less of a crap about like <laughs> making the wrong decision or yeah. you know overthinking things too much and just you start to realize like you can kind of do whatever you want no one's really going to mind that much you know what i mean but that's such a huge thing to finally embrace right because yeah and, I, and i'm sure that i'm i'm not embracing it as fully as it sounds like i am but I, but i'm trying to anyway you know what i mean um and so again part of that is just like ca- ca- putting this under my own name and having to just know that it's going to be spelled wrong and on <laughs> rock club websites and mispronounced and you know whatever but just kind of just going with it and just accepting it yeah well for as mature as that acceptance is one of the things that i'm really struck by by this record by non-believers is that it is it's really shot through with this incredibly <clears throat> almost tactile melancholy that is like it, it's it's music i believe you're investigating like a younger self like a younger voice right it, a lot of the songs seem to come from a place of you can stop me at any time because I'm reading into your work here, but it seems to come from a place of being young and discovering music and discovering yourself and a time when the world feels like limitless possibility, but you have very limited means to achieve it. No, I think, I think that's a good, I think that's a good way to describe it. I mean, um, one of the, one of the things that does align this record a little bit with some earlier portostatic records is that, a lot of the songs I just started with a sound. I mean, mm-hmm. I just started um, with like a you know an old keyboard or something, and just 
starting with the sound and seeing where that leads in terms of the rest of the song. It's like that tone that begins your hologram, the first song. That that's why that song is first also on the record, your hologram. It starts with a, um, a synthesizer sound, uh, and the songs are built up sometimes just from that, from a sound. And other songs, like there's a song called Barely There, um, a song called Only Do that are that are written on guitar, more mm-hmm. like a super chunk song. So it's a, it's a mix of those things, but but working with those keyboards and those old synthesizers kind of um i think drove the record towards a um it made me think of a type of music that um well reminded me of being in high school and music that was popular in the early 80s and mid 80s when uh music that was popular or popular to you both in other words some music that was popular that i didn't even like at the time right um, like like chart topping stuff or yeah or? yeah like like uh, I don't know Culture Club or something okay. like that you know Depeche Mode so new wave songs that were on the charts yeah as well as new wave songs that my friends and I were listening to or punk rock that we were listening to or you know Sisters of Mercy or something like that and 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 it made me think about a few different things one thing it made me think about is this music that again like at the time coming out of classic rock and and then hardcore Mm -hmm. a lot of this music felt very artificial it was easy to criticize as artificial right there's a great line in one of my favorite movies valley girl where they're in a club and the plimsolls are playing and the girls who are from the valley are like holding their ears yeah and then nicholas cage or it might be his sidekick says you know that that synth pop you guys listen to is gutless or something. That's a, I'm paraphrasing, but he yeah. has something like that, which which really characterized a lot of attitudes at the time, I right. think, including some of my own. But at the same time, I, th- I think it's interesting that a lot of music that either set out to be – set out to come across as disaffected, right. y- you know, removed. or removed – you know, not not real. I mean, like orchestral maneuvers in the dark, something like mm-hmm. that. Like drum machines, synthesizers. Like at the same time, at, you know, a band like New Order. I know it's partially how old we were at that time, but a lot of that music is like the mo- remained the most emotionally affecting yes. music. I think that's true <laughs> for for people who heard it then, or maybe and and people who who heard it later as well. But so the, this like this interesting idea of this like mu- music that has this super emotional resonance that it, at the time seemed to a lot of people inhuman or something. You know what I mean? Just just hearing those sounds, just hearing the you mentioned those band names, it's like this emotional kick in the gut for me. Just the way those songs sound, you hear them on the radio because yeah. I'm a little bit younger, but I was those were on the radio. That sure. takes me to a place where you're first sort of forming yourself and hearing the world and. They sound to me. I mean, they say. I, I, I think when I heard songs like the ones you're mentioning, I wasn't yet in the Cool Wars. Like I wasn't in mm-hmm. high school, so I wasn't fighting that yet. And it to me, it just sounded like they were. You know, it was literally tuning them in from outer space. And this is what the world sounded like. This is what romance sounded like. Well, right, and and you know, at that at that time, the the place to hear cool stuff or to be exposed to cool stuff for for us anyway was college radio. Yeah. Um, living in North Carolina, we had the the. UNC station WXYC and the Duke station WXDU or MTV. Yeah. And because on MTV even though it was widely reviled by rock bands as, you know, loudly uh and punk rock bands, 
I mean, if you were 14, like, you couldn't go to a club. Like, you were going to see new yeah. new music on MTV, and, and, and they would actually play stuff that was that was pretty weird. You know, when you think about stuff that, like, you would see on MTV then, um, and you realize, like, and you think about it now, like, was that actually popular, or they just didn't have enough videos? So <laughs> I, they I think it was just, a mix of both. I think it was a mix of both. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, think, th- thinking about that time and the kind of music that, again, like united, I think, kids in small towns especially mm-hmm. when they're kids who are like desperate for something new and interesting. A lot of what they got was that, yeah. you know, um, and and in a place at least where like where where we lived, it it united. You know that kind of music united people that didn't necessarily have the same aesthetic or, or the or were in the same social group. But mm-hmm. uh, at a certain point, if you're not in the mainstream of junior high or high school or whatever, you're somewhere. You're all together somewhere else. Somewhere else you know what yeah. I mean? So um, there's a there's a line in one of the songs about going to the cliffs, and the cliffs are a place in in Duke Forest. Where if you went there on a Friday night, there would be like groups of punk rockers, yeah. groups of goths, just whoever, like going out there and like drinking beer in the woods. Burnouts, you know what I mean? waivers, yeah. theater kids. Stoners, just- like whoever, you know. And so, you know, thinking about thinking about that time and music and and also thinking about what is it that's like in kids, having kids myself. Yeah. What is it that's in kids that that's drawn to someone who looks like the singer for Classiques Nouveau? Like, what is it that's in kids that wants to listen to Sisters of Mercy? Like, I didn't have a dark childhood. Yeah. But I loved listening to the Cocteau Twins and these things that were considered kind of – I mean, if you listen to it, it sound, yeah. has like a gothic kind of sound to it. And, and so it's the same thing that makes my daughter want to, you know, go watch Insurgent or something like that. You know, like – watch super violent movies about a dystopian there's future. There's a borrowed drama that adds this like pomp to your life yeah. that you probably don't otherwise have. Yeah, it's, and so it, that's like an interesting thing to me and I think that what it all leads towards all these different things leads towards this this idea of like transitional periods yeah. in your life and awkwardness and 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 stuff that you do in order to not feel awkward you know what i mean yeah. or stuff that you can latch on to to be like well at least i like this yeah you know it's, a, it's, a, it's like a shield you can hold up yeah at least this is for me yeah you know? at least this gives me an umbrella and identity to borrow for a while even if uh, even if you're like a kid living in a small town in the south yeah and the thing that you think is like for you is like some person living in the north of England, right? You, you know what I mean, like what? Or, or what is that? Like, why, why is Morrissey so popular in Mexico? Like, what? What was the connection? Amazing. Yeah, I mean, just some, you know, like what is that thing that it's like makes you feel some connection to this thing that has, in some ways, nothing to do with your life, but in other ways, like you love it. You know. Well, there's also this idea that for for people who had access to a punk scene, like who'd actually discover it, there was a sense of being challenged a little bit, right? Like you would go in and you would be literally pushed around, but you would also see things you hadn't seen before. Yeah. But if you didn't live in a town that had that you got these things from MTV or from college radio and you sort of made do. And yeah. There's this great line in, in Lost Again, which is one of the, I think one of the, just the best songs on the record, with this idea that someone is, the, the narrator is looking for someone, desperately looking for someone, but then is 
the only thing scarier than being lost looking for this person is if what if you actually found this person? Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. The, there's a sense of like the like drama and danger all mixed up and and confusion. And all I think at once. that that's a real that's a that's a again like a a, a feeling of a transitional mm-hmm. period where like something has changed and like it's kind of exciting but it's also kind of scary and you don't really know what to do with it you know in in so, like getting your driver's license yeah. or something like that you know and then something's lost in the process something yeah. like whether the childhood or whatever is lost yeah. at the same time um you you mentioned it i was going to ask um as a, a father of kids do you are you observing the same things now because one thing that i'm constantly curious about is you know for us um seeking out music was more of a challenge, more of a journey. You know, you would have like the Sherpa in high school or the older brother would pass you something. You would find the club. Maybe you would tune into the MTV late at night after you're supposed to be asleep. Kids, I can't believe I'm going to say kids today. This is just kids today, kids today, you know, (laughs) if only they knew, but have everything at the touch of a button, which doesn't mean it's not gettable and it's not appreciated, but it is a different experience. Yeah. I think that, you know, when I think about, what I was listening to when I was 11, mm-hmm. which is how old uh, our oldest kid is, it was the radio. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was classic rock or or maybe top 40. Um, and in some ways, I feel like as much as things have changed in terms of how you can buy music and that kind of thing and how you can be exposed to it if you want to be, that is still the dominant paradigm for an 11 year old it's just that you're listening to taylor swift on you, you know on your on your ipod instead of yeah on the radio in, in fact you can listen to five seconds of summer song like 10 times in a row <laughs> yeah. instead of having to wait for it to come on every yeah. hour or whatever you know what i mean you, you, you don't i i do realize i sound like the the, the the parodies of the people who are like i used to have to walk to school you know uphill both ways in the snow when i when i talk about waking up at 6 a.m to set my VCR to tape the new REM video premiere. Right. And I was like, well, what is yeah. everything you just said is gibberish. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, but I, but I think that the enthusiasm is still there. The enthusiasm. Yeah. And the appreciation. And, and the appreciation and the, and the excitement of being a fan, you know, is, is still there. Um, and, you know, the fact that you had to, as you said, maybe stay up late or get someone to drive you to the record store or whatever to find other stuff before yeah. you still have to work to find that stuff now because you're 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 digging through the morass of what's just like put in your face as soon as you turn on your device if you have a device yeah. so there's still work involved you know what i mean and i think that i think that kids still have to work through it in some way you know to find the thing that like resonates with them beyond just yeah, loving hearing that catchy in, song that they love. In yeah. some ways, it's it's even more challenging because it's not like it's linear work because you actually have to dig through the weight of everything ever, right? At all times, like if you go on Spotify or whatever, you could listen to anything. You could listen to stuff that could transform your life, or you could listen to just terrible sure, music because it's all there. But who's going to help you find it? Right. Um, I mean, the fun thing is for me about the the way technology is now, as uh, a parent and as a fan, is that. Um, you can play something, you know, the, if I, my son is seven and I got him hooked on the madness song, one step beyond, because uh-huh. I knew that if he saw that video and heard that song, I mean, it's a catchy song and like the video is hilarious and they're just like, you, 
even now you see them and you're just like, who are these guys? Like, yeah. what, you know? And, um, and so now I have a seven year old who's like, wants to watch a madness video and I can show it to him on my phone, which is, you know, you can like, service that need. I can service right that away. need. And, and, uh, and he's moved on to the Our house video, which is also a great song. Yeah. Um, but so I, I, I do appreciate that if, if, you know, if you have someone, if you have a kid who's like interested in hearing stuff, you can play them whatever you want to expose them to. Yeah, easily. You know, now whether they like it or not, you never know what's going to happen. You know, but but it's fun being able to do that. You know, as someone who probably grew up, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but probably you know, curating mixtapes, make you know, obsessing over order and and your taste and the presentation of the world. Sure. How has it been letting go of some of that in terms of being a parent? Or have you not let go? Do you do you do you give them homework in terms of what they need to listen to at age nine? And- no, I don't try to. <laughs> I, I I mean, they're not in control of the stereo at home. Okay, they're rules. It's not a rule. It's just that I'll put a record on. Yeah. And so far, like they haven't like yanked it off again. You, you know That's what I mean? Good. They, they may not. They may not like it. Right. But, but it's. I think it's still kind of my domain. Uh huh. Um, but uh, you know that. They have some of their own records, and they 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 play them sometimes. But frankly, it's just easier for them to just put it on the, you know, put it on the device, than yeah, to actually go get the record and put it on the turntable and then, you know do the whole thing. Do you think? I mean, is it is it facile to make a direct conne- connection to the uh, to these kids, your kids getting older and listening to music and the direction your your songwriting took you on this album? Do you think? No, I, I think that that's I think that's totally there, um, and. In, I, I think that was definitely in the back of my mind, you know, when I was making the record, um, and the throughout the record, there's a little bit of a um, like a fictional kind of pair of characters mm-hmm. that I was thinking about that were kids who were kind of united by music in some way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and how far that can really take you as the thing that unites you when then what feels like a long time at that age but was is really maybe a year or two all of a sudden everyone's going a different direction you yeah know, you know what i mean yeah um and so that kind of became the concept in my mind even though it's not a super literal story or anything but it gave it a little bit of a framework and you know, to to put around these issues that we've been talking about, and then I think the last song on the record, which is called "Come Upstairs," is is essentially set in the present, and it's it's it could it, it's kind of about like someone who's still like in that in that world, yeah. Um, you know, re- retreating into music and being down, me being in the basement, you know, making a record. Yeah, recording in the home studio, and kids are like, "Dad, what are you doing?" <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're still down get out there. Of the basement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come do something fun. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's time. It's yeah. been now over many years. Um, I, not to make this completely the, the the Mac Family Hour, but I I have the theory that I wanted to run by you. And your your wife is a chef at a yes. restaurant, is an, an acclaimed chef. Um, I have this theory that I've been kicking around about the rise in, and I hate this word, but foodieism and the interest in younger people, which is, I think, all a very good thing in general, in seeking out good food and, you know, authentic food experiences or whatever that means. 
and thinking about it in terms of how what for my generation was you know we were going to clubs and going to shows and trying to find the seven inch yeah these kids are going to find the best pork bun in flushing <laughs> and the truth is though oh my god that's I feel, a hilarious comparison yeah. but i feel like I, i'm trying to decide which one's more nourishing but i really feel like there's a connection to be made because music isn't really tactile and it doesn't demand the search or the hunt anymore where if you act you know the, the needing to go and have it and have this fleeting experience with something it's kind of food now it's it's not media i'm always telling andrea my wife that She's in the right business because you can't download food for free. That's right. That's what I'm saying. You can't smell no it. How much you can't you taste it. Uh, yeah, you'll be arrested for stealing food, most likely. Um, <laughs> That's right. Or if someone went to a restaurant and said, here's 10 cents for this bite. <laughs> here's, yeah. here's two and a half cents for this bite. Right. It's not going to work. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about your theory as much as you have, so I, I <laughs> because can't, I just dropped I can't, it on you in the middle of a live I podcast. Fully, I can't fully judge it, but I do, but I do think that there is, um, I think the same thing that that you're talking about, you know, wanting uh, a ta- tangible mm-hmm. physical experience, is still in everybody, even though we can, you know, lament the fact that people maybe don't consume music that way. Yeah. Um, they certainly still go see shows. You, That's you know true. what I mean, and and I think that one thing that account, I think it accounts for the fact that vinyl has been, vinyl sales have been up, going up over the last few years. Yeah. Um, is the same thing. People do want, if you love something, you want to experience it in a way that it feels you, personal. You, it feels, and feels personal and feels like you have an attachment to mm-hmm. it and even an investment in it, um, and that it's. Right. I mean, if four friends go to Queens to find an obscure food that they can't get anywhere else or the best version of it, yeah, that is an experience that they're having together and they want to do that partially because it will be delicious and partially so they can have that memory and that experience yeah. of like, remember when we went and did that thing? And I think that it's the same for um, – consuming music in a way that and and we think about this all the time and talk about it at merge uh creating music fans by providing whatever it is that's going to give them give people a real connection to the music that they love which is not just a cd which is not i mean to me i like cds and cds sound great and for a long time cds were the thing that people would go shop for and buy and felt a connection to. But I think vinyl is still even more so mm-hmm. that that thing that feels substantial. And um, I think it's true that if you if you buy a record and bring it home and you listen to it, you will spend more time actually listening to it than any other format. It's more active. You have to get up and switch it. You have it. to be near it to, yeah. to switch it. And bands on Merge talk about this very specifically. Uh, like... You know, we want people to have to turn the record over this many times, or like we want people to have to turn the record over after this track. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, so of that course. then they're thinking about the next track that they hear. You know, and the sequencing and getting it just right. Yeah, and so I mean, that's that's all stuff that we have always thought about um, as fans and as people who have a record label and, and uh, people in a band. So I think that 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 that's all thing. That's all stuff that's really important to keeping people engaged um, and. You know, I think going to shows is is great, but I but I feel like 
um, I'm still attached to the idea of an album, even if it's maybe an old-fashioned idea. Mm-hmm. But I think that an album is still the way that I think about uh, music, you know? Um, even though that format itself is an artificial yeah. construct of how much, how many minutes you could get on each side of a, you know, yeah. a vinyl record or whatever. But I think it works, you know? Yeah, well, you've, I mean, we're talking about non-believers. It, you conceived it as a piece. And yeah. you're talking about how the last song brings it brings it to a conclusion and speaking of that last song so you've come upstairs but i want to put you back down in the basement for sure. a minute um you know the bands that you, the, the age you were when you were talking about like sisters of mercy and being in high school and, and end of high school this is when i became obsessed with your band and a lot of your peers <laughs> uh-huh. and friends um and i think a lot about like there was a show when Porta Static opened for guided by voices at mm. the trocadero in philly I think it was like yeah. summer of 95 or something. Yeah. And I remember seeing you and, and I'd been a fan of Super Chunk and then you had this other side project going on and, and Super Chunk had it, you know, I think that was Foolish had been the last record you'd put out, which is one of the great Super Chunk oh, records. Um, and and you were on your own label and I remember looking at this and being like, this guy's got to figure it out. Like it's all figured out. Like look at this, like look how far he's, uh-huh. look how much he's accomplished in his career. Right. Like DIY and making art and something like that is a, path it is possible it's inspiring and i think about it now and you were like 27 28 which now to me seems like that is not that old believe me to me it seems like it's not that old either right Uh, um well i feel like well it's interesting because obviously we as we're doing it or as you're doing whatever you're doing at least for us we weren't thinking you know, I'm hosting ESPN's premier pork bun podcast. We, we, were, we, we, we weren't thinking, oh, we have to do this by the time we're this old or whatever. Right. We were just doing what we were doing and kind of taking it where, where it went, you know. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. That's interesting because I never – because I, I, don't, I don't remember really thinking that about going to see – when I was in high school, like we would have to drive to New York right. or DC or Atlanta to see a, a, a quote unquote bigger band. You know, right. like if, if we wanted to go see New Order or Susie and the Banshees or something, they'd be playing in, in DC. Right. Uh, and so we would drive up, and, and I, I don't remember ever thinking, like, how old are they? Like, are they, you know? Well, I didn't remember thinking how old you were. I just remember thinking you were an accomplished adult oh, okay. who had done this. I w- I'm saying that realizing how old you so were funny, has only I totally happened don't now. think of myself as an adult at that point Ooh. in my life. <laughs> well, right. No, me either. Now <laughs> yeah. that I'm like, that's 10 right, years in my rear right. view. But, but I remember thinking like, oh man, like that's, of course, got to buy voices were different because they were all in their forties at right. that point. Even then. Definitely adults. Definitely. And the way they behave, they're drinking everything right, super right. mature. But, um, I, I guess what I mean is, um, looking back on everything, the decisions you guys made now from in hindsight, particularly with establishing Merge early but then going back to it because you guys were briefly on Matador and then you went back to your own label um, and stuck with it throughout uh, you know, the 90s, which were, I'm sure, a very strange decade to be in a not-unknown indie band. Mm-hmm. Um, this seems like incredibly confident, smart decision-making. Uh, I, I wonder if it felt like that at the time. I think that, I think that it weirdly did. I mean... You know, when – I mean, nobody knows more than people in their early 20s, right? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. As far as they, as far as they <laughs> that's think. It. No one has more confidence. No one that's, has more confidence. That's right. Uh, so while 
Right. So we started merging. We were, you know, Super Chunk was on Matador uh, for for three records, and that was. I mean, to us, that that alone was like the dream. Yeah. You know, we're on we're on the label that Gerard started with Chris. Yeah. Like we knew home. Like we were fans of Homestead, and uh, that was as cool as it got. And, and and conflict, and we were just like, this is as cool as it gets. Yeah. New York label. Yeah. That you know. Uh, that you know, when you go by the office, you can get a tape of the new Dust Devils record before it comes out, yep. and the new Pavement record, and you know, not just all that. Stuff. When I was interning there in '98, I remember like Cab Power coming in to make long distance phone calls from the office. I mean, and right. use the mail machine. I mean, this was. I mean, we felt big business. We at least I felt like we had really cool peers. Yeah, um, we did, and. But the same, and then and we have merge going at the same time, and we're putting out records by Polvo and uh, the Magnetic Fields and Lamb Chop at that East point. East River Pipe too, I think. East River right. Pipe, uh, and so we had a lot going on, and we did feel like we were doing it the way we wanted to do it. But I still don't think that we said, "Well, here's what we're going to do for our career." Yeah, we were just kind of doing it, not thinking. In other words, we had confidence that we were making the right decision to have our own label and then to sign to Matador and then to go back to Merge and then to not sign to Atlantic or whoever. I think we felt confident in those decisions. But we didn't feel confident in the way that we're thinking like, this is going to serve us well 10 years from now. Or well, in 10 years you'll win a Grammy and then you'll know that you've made it. And, right. Or your I mean, label it's like we, we, we really weren't thinking about it. We're thinking about it maybe from uh, – a, a short term. This makes sense for nineteen. This makes sense for us now, right? And and for the way we see things work out with other bands that have signed to major labels right. or have not or whatever. This makes sense, and this doesn't make us feel skeeved out. <laughs> That's a good you know way I mean? to do business, yeah. Uh, and so that was just kind of what was driving it, really. Just how, how do we feel about this, you know? And and also thinking. While yes, we had our con- our t- mid twenties confidence. We also had people that we looked up to that we had been yeah. fans of. Again, that we were not emulating per se, but when you grew up loving Discord records or uh, you know K or Sub Pop <laughs> or something, and and going, would this band have done that? You know, yeah. would. Ian McKay have done this? Would, you know, I mean, it's a high standard to hold That's yourself to. That's a pretty to, rough standard. And you can't always meet it, but at the same time, there were examples out there right. to, to, to look at. It wasn't and, just coming up with this on our and in the, uh, also top of our head. You know. Post-Nirvana 90s, there were also plenty of examples of things going very badly. Decisions yes. people made just backfiring. There were sure. very few examples of, oh, that's a logical next step for my life and career. Sure. I mean, and, we, and Merge early on uh, started working with Touch and Go Records mm-hmm. in Chicago. And Corey at Touch and Go is a huge guide for us in, in, in that just seeing how he was running his mm-hmm. thing and being able to say, what would you do in this situation? That, that, that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a lot of people that we could ask questions of, and, and luckily the music community, the independent music community, always felt like a place where you could just ask someone, right? hey, like, do you know this booking agent? Do you know this club? Like, would you play there? You know, would you um, 
have your T-shirts made by these people? Would you have your posters printed here? Where, you know, where do you buy your plastic bags for your seven inches? I mean, like every, anything you want to ask, there is like someone you could ask. Yeah. Know? Well, fast forwarding a little bit, um, in two thousand two thousand one, you guys put out an album that I totally adore. I will always ride for. Here's to shutting up. I'm glad um, you like it. I, it's it's probably in my heart, maybe my favorite super truck wow. record, which I've I've gotten I've gotten some some grief for that. It's not everyone's I'm not favorite. I'm going to say you're in the minority of one, but <laughs> but I'm up there. Um, and uh, that was the last super truck record for nine years. Um, there was a DVD you guys put out of a tour DVD afterwards, where you guys seemed fairly unhappy with the circumstance at that time. That record was supposed to come out the week after nine eleven. Yeah, it ended up coming out two weeks after nine eleven. Yeah. Uh, not the best time to be on tour around the world in a rock band. Um, we had some great shows, and uh, I think the tone of the uh, – there might be some disagreement within the band about this. I think the tone of the documentary is maybe slightly more melancholy than the actual day-to-day right. was. Right. But I think about half the band would say like – no, it was pretty much <laughs> That's really what it was. Or maybe not. Or maybe, or maybe worse. What, other than earth-shattering, awful global events that affected the experience, what changed in your mind? I mean, because you, it, it seemed like a necessary and healthy break that then happened. But also, things in, other than 9-11 had sort of changed. I feel like the yeah. 90s were, were over in a, in a literal way and also in a, in a, in a, a figurative way. I feel um, like it was a confluence of a lot of things. I think that taking taking like you said global events out of it i feel like with that record we tried to do uh, some different things musically that i i like the way that i i like that record too i will join you in that thank opinion. you um but you know when you've been a band for 11 years at that point um your fans don't necessarily want to hear you do something different. They don't want pedal steel. You know? I want pedal steel. Yeah. I wanted pedal steel. I think that we were all happy to be doing something different. And then when you put the record out and the reaction is kind of like, eh, why'd you guys do something different? You yeah. Know? Then you kind of go like, oh, that's, a, that's an exhausting thing to hear after spending all that time writing and making that record. Yeah. Um, well, this is what happens to a lot of bands, though, where where the the drive and ambition of being a human being and a yeah. different place in your life starts to diverge potentially from the sort of static fan base. Right. And I feel like some many band, most bands don't survive that. Both are either artistically or just they don't survive it. They break up. Yeah, and so I think that we had, we had still been on that album tour album cycle. Yeah. Pretty hard since '89, and. The combination of how that record was received and the touring um, and just wanting to be off of that treadmill a little bit just made us say, like, let's just let's just take a break. Um, and, you know, we would still we still played a couple shows every year and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And I made some portostatic records and John started playing with every every band, band um, every good band. And uh and so and merge kept you guys kept you in and the merge like you know really ramped up uh, right around that same time and so all of a sudden we were super busy with the label and spoon and, and arcade fire and right. everybody else and, and you know I, I feel like that that trajectory has been told in our book and stuff like that but but it really was this weird thing of you know for the first ten years 
since eight, from eight, 89 to 99, it was essentially like Superchunk was our job mm-hmm. and we had the label, but we weren't paying ourselves from the label. We, we had people who worked there, but for Laura and I, it was really like Superchunk was our job. Mm-hmm. And then it flip-flopped right at the time when all of a sudden we were starting to have our biggest records on Merge and all of a sudden Merge was our job. Yeah, and it came at a good time since we didn't want to be on tour and making records every every other year anymore either. Um, so things just happened in a fortuitous way in terms of the timing of that. Because it also came at a time when you were then in different parts in your life. I mean, you you, yeah. you, you people in the band got married, had kids. Yeah. Um, things that the touring cycle doesn't isn't generally kind to. You're right, and it's not conducive to touring as much as we used to tour. Um, but uh, but you know as I as I said like we still liked playing live and we didn't there was no uh, kind of fiery bl- blow up amongst the band members or anything so it didn't seem to make sense to say like we're breaking up right just to only then every couple of years but like, oh, we're getting back together again for yeah. three hey. shows or whatever you know um, so it was really fun when we made Majesty Shredding and uh, and I Hate Music to be able to like do that again. But was Majesty Shredding was making that with from the with the distance between Phase One of the of Super Chunk's existence and whatever was going to come next was it simpler somehow because you know one of the very first things we were talking about was how you sort of eventually you can sort of shed some of the rules that you make for yourselves yeah. or punk rock orthodoxy or all these things. If the thing about Majesty Shredding that was so delightful was was it just seemed like well you could make anything you could make a portostatic static record you could do anything you want but so let's do this thing that Super Chunk does joyfully and better than anybody else. That 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 was the idea was to both do the thing do make a record of the kind of music that w- we're good at mm-hmm. and is fun to play live. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, here's the shutting up. Though I like it, it's difficult to play live. It's, all the songs pedal have steel. keyboards. For, not to mention the pedal yeah. steel. Um, when we did that tour in 2001, we. Um, we added a member, Annie Hayden, who was in the band Spent, came on tour with can, us. Can she make another album, please? And I would love for her to hear another Annie Hayden record. Me too. I I'm just sure want to put that into the, the, the ether. Annie Hayden sings on uh, the song Wet Leaves on this, Does she? On this record. Yes. I love Annie on Hayden. The new, on the Nonbelievers. So um, one thing that we did with Majesty Shredding was that we went back to a way of songwriting that was more like the first two records which was that I would kind of write the songs and present them to the band and mm-hmm. then people would add their own mm-hmm. stuff to it. But, you know, here's the shutting up. I mean, that record and the couple before that, we literally wrote those records, all four of us, practicing a few hours a day, several yeah. times a week. You know, and it's that's a drawn-out process. Yeah. Um, and so no one wanted to do that again. No one had time to do that again. Uh, so we really went back to, like, a whole other thing in some ways what you're saying just throwing out the rules that we had kind of lived under for a long time you know um because why why go back to that you know if nobody wants to uh and i think that that really gave the i think that one of the ideas was with those records there for to keep that immediacy Mm -hmm. that you have by nature the fact that you're not rehearsing several times a week you know to learn Mm -hmm. like to learn these songs and to write these songs together um, so I think it made the process fun and made certainly made playing those songs live really fun because they're they're fun songs. Well, the 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 title of the of the last Super Trunk record you made, I Hate Music, 
It's funny. But I think it's a really, really vital and important idea. And I was really kind of uh-huh. moved by it. I mean, I think Me and You and Jackie Matu is just a killer song. Thanks. And it kind of also an important song because it really addresses I'll – use, I'll use what I was taught in college. I'll use I statements. Okay. For me, yeah. I, it, it, it really articulated this conflict that I've had with music as I've gotten older. Which is it dominated my teens and twenties, and I, I, you know, I, I wrote about music professionally. That was all I cared about and thought about. I still think I, I like music. It's still important I, it's to still you. Important obviously, to me. Yeah. I care about it a lot, but I've lost the fire of the wars. Like I don't want to fight with anybody about what matters. My taste. I feel like that's a younger person's game. Right. And the, the the sentiment that that that's in both the title and in the song where the, the line comes from, it sort of goes from this idea that that music's unimportant. And then suddenly crashes back down. Maybe it's crashing back down into that same basement where right. you have these incredibly ecstatic memories and shared moments that only are music. And sure. I, I, I really liked hearing that because it sort of pointed forward this idea that it's possible to still wrestle with these things and have it be vital when you're not in a, a basement show or you're not at the Trocadero or wherever. Well, and I wonder if it's also – I mean it's a strange thing to confront the idea that you have to kind of um, get up for engaging. Yes. And like, you know, force yourself to in- engage in something. I your mean, Tuesday night is not going to be going to the rock club necessarily to drink beers with your friends. But if you right. want to make it that, you have to do it. You have to do it. Like Plan if you, it. If you, get if, a babysitter. If you want to go see the band that you love and they're playing on a Tuesday night 30 minutes away, the only way to, to see that is to go there. Yeah. And – it's like a lot of things if you can if you can engage you rarely regret the fact that you mm-hmm. did that you know you don't think oh i wish i hadn't gone to that show yeah. that doesn't happen very often that's you, right you know um more often you're surprised at something being better than you thought or or that those you know that you can still you can still uh reach those parts of yourself like you still have contact with that part of yourself that can be transported in that way or yeah and and so i, I think that it's that that record a lot of it was about that exact thing of acknowledging that it's music is different has a different role but fighting against that a little bit you, you know what i mean yeah there's no there's no give up on either of these records right. that, which is important and and i think that uh in in some ways the new record goes back it's like i hate music but going back to the kind of root of of that of the love of know? it of the yeah. reconnecting yeah is so there's no no new plans for super chunk at the moment it's people are back doing their things and john is about to embark on some mountain goats touring yep. um and uh jim wilbur lives in Asheville. um it's the other side of the state right yeah i'm hoping that he'll uh join us when i go do a solo show up there and play some songs mm-hmm. um and Laura, of course, is is at Merge, and um, yeah, I think that we're. I mean, Superchunk is doing a show opening for the Replacements in Philadelphia, which is amazing, which is very exciting. That's the only show that we have scheduled right now because um, I'm doing a bunch of shows for the new record in May. Um, and there's a band called the Flesh Wounds that's from Carboro, North Carolina. Um, we put out a seven inch of theirs on Merge, and they're both opening those shows and also playing in my band on those oh, nice. shows. So. I made a record with a lot of keyboards on it, which will now be played by a band with no keyboards. 
Um, it's learning so, the mistakes of Fierce to Shutting Up. So we're, 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 we've been working on arrangements of the songs on this record for uh, punk rock band. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to all that. Um, Nonbelievers is out May 4th. 4th. Yeah. Emerge Records. I'm going to hold it up again because it makes me feel like David Letterman. Um, I love this record. Thanks. And that, that painting is by uh, an artist named Trudy Benson who has a show uh, at Lisa Cooley Gallery this, this month in New York. And this is – you don't get the se- talk about something you don't get the sense of from a CD cover. Yeah, is the scale of uh, of her paintings. I'm so happy we're talking about paintings and pork buns in the same yep. podcast. Um, Mac, this is such a pleasure. Thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes, or go to Grantland.com and click on podcast.